Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called The Stranger on the Bridge and today's theme is Strangers. But before we get into it, welcome back. Um, hopefully you did notice that we've had a bit of a summer break and today's show kicks off our new Namaste motherfucking podcast season and we're very, very excited to be back. That's me and producer Mike. Um, we really hope you enjoyed our summer specials from the archives. If you haven't had a chance to catch up with them yet, they were in this order. Angela Barnes, Danny Wallace, Louisa Young, Dr. Kevin Dutton and Zoe Lyons. I feel like I'm reading out prime winners on 1980s hospital radio um no offense to those guests we've got some incredible guests in the mix for this autumn so do please keep tuning in and as always remember to rate review and recommend us to your friends colleagues family and of course in keeping with today's show do also feel absolutely free to talk about us to random strangers so strangers A short story is like a quick kiss in the dark from a stranger, said Stephen King. When hippos hear a stranger coming, they unleash what is known as a poop tornado. That's fair enough, we all get a bit nervous sometimes. In South Wales, a time-honoured midwinter tradition includes carrying a horse's skull around and singing to strangers to request ale. And in a study in the 1980s, men and women were approached by a stranger and asked the question, would you go to bed with me tonight? 75% of men said yes, and every single woman said no. Apparently, subsequent studies have yielded similar results, although it does sound quite 1980s, that study. I'm not sure if those studies are happening in 2023. I rather hope not. But anyway, you get the gist. Yeah, good. Good. It's been good, actually. Yeah. Um, who, right, who, who will go first? Those are today's guests, Johnny Benjamin and Neil Laban. American film critic Roger Ebert said... Art is the closest we can come to understanding how a stranger really feels. Talking of strangers, in 2007, a Portuguese aristocrat left his entire fortune to 70 strangers whose names were picked at random from a telephone directory. That's tricky now we don't have telephone directories, isn't it? And complete strangers are apparently better at telling when children are lying than their own parents. That's why home educating is not a good idea. But, you know, you need that time, you need that space, so... You may know today's guests, Johnny Benjamin and Neil Laban from the Channel 4 documentary, The Stranger on the Bridge. In case you don't know the story, one January morning in 2008, Johnny Benjamin, then 20, stood on Waterloo Bridge, about to jump and take his own life. A stranger saw his distress and stopped to talk to him, a decision that saved Johnny's life. Following a global campaign to find the stranger, the 2015 Channel 4 documentary follows the now 26-year-old Johnny as he tries to find the man he had nicknamed Mike because he couldn't remember his actual name. 320 million people around the world followed the search, with the hashtag FindMike trending more than Beyonce or Obama. In the end, Johnny did find him. As it turns out, not Mike after all, but a man called Neil Laban. Johnny and Neil now work together full-time visiting schools, hospitals, prisons and workplaces to help end the stigma by talking about mental health and suicide prevention. They ran the London Marathon together in 2017, including passing under Waterloo Bridge together. Johnny was recognised for his work as an influential activist changing the culture around mental health when he was awarded an MBE in 2017. Trigger warning, you'll have gathered this from the subject matter. There is talk of suicide and suicide prevention during this episode. We've deliberately released it on the 7th of uh, September ahead of World Suicide Prevention Day on the 10th of September. And we've included plentiful resources in the show notes for you to turn to if you're affected by this. Um, There's loads of good stuff in there. And you'll know if you're a regular to the podcast, we've touched on this subject before and the feedback's always been brilliant. So yes, some of the 
the conversation in the show today is heavy. Much of it is light and um, all of it is full of hope. So in this episode, Johnny, Neil and I talked about chance, mental health, friends, love, life, death, vulnerability and hope. But I started by asking them what their life is like now, 15 years after that chance, life-changing encounter on Waterloo Bridge. We're not always great at celebrating that. Like we, we've got a big milestone coming up. So it was, it was that amount of time since the conversation, which we'll get to, I guess, if you want to, Callie. Um, but then like how we actually became friends happened in 2014. Um, that's when our like our friendship and relationship kicked off. And obviously next year is 2024. So like we've got this 10 year anniversary coming up um yeah it's a biggie it's a biggie so um yeah we're going to try and you know recognize that and things are super different so at the time you know um I was uh fit had more hair um <laughs> less commitments uh thought I had stress uh which is not comparable to you know the stuff going on in in my 40 year old life today I turned 40 this year when me and Johnny spoke, thank you. Mm-hmm. When me and Johnny first met each other in 2008, I was like 24. Um, so yeah, the framing of like everything around like our relationship, what it means, the the like the professional commitments we have is like just completely, completely different. Um, uh, for both of us, I think. For me, I was working in the fitness industry at the time. So I just qualified as a, a newly qualified personal trainer, really annoyingly happy-go-lucky, plucky kind of like, that's too much, need you in bite-sized chunks kind of person. Um, and nowadays with like, you know, a 30-year mortgage and three kids being married, all of which is completely glorious, you know, I just am a little bit more like, I think introspective, a little bit more like, calmer and methodical about like everything in front of me um and a bit more boring to be honest you've got a good backstory for somebody boring both of you are a good person to sit next to at a dinner party so that's me i'll let johnny answer that question yeah johnny over to you uh i'm yeah boring um No, I think I'm more boring, actually. We used to be really fun. Like, at the very beginning, we used to um, we used to go out all the time. We didn't care what time we got home. We we would sometimes we'd stay out till, like, 4 or 5 a.m. Um, now we're in bed by, like, 10. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely more, more boring. Um, it's always how I let my guests to start, by just letting the listeners know <laughs> they're in for an absolutely boring... <laughs> so you're more boring which I (laughs) you're more boring which I very much doubt but um but well I mean it might be worth us I think most people know your story I think the um your find Mike hashtag which we'll talk about um I think that that reached whatever it was 320 million I think was the was the figure of people that became aware of what you were doing and I know you've talked a lot about your story and this this podcast is about hope. It's in line with Suicide Prevention Day on Sunday and it's really important we're looking to the future. But I think it is such a powerful story and it is a story of hope. So if it's all right with you, I would like to just touch on what happened on that January morning in, in 2008. So, I mean, I guess, are we all right to start with you, Johnny, given that that moment very much did start with you? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was in the in the worst place of, of my life at that point. Um, yeah, I, I've just been diagnosed with um, something called schizoaffective disorder, which is um, it's like it's like schizophrenia and bipolar combination. And um, I was in hospital. Um, I was struggling with my sexuality. My mind was. Um, uh how to, uh, I, I i i was done basically i was done i was yeah um didn't see a future um yeah i'd given up i'd given up basically yeah uh and yeah on that january morning um i decided to run away from the hospital um and yeah i managed to 
I said I needed a cigarette and and they let me out and then I ran as fast as I could and um yeah I I made my way to this this bridge where where we met and um yeah I went on to the to the edge and um thankfully I wasn't on for very long when this stranger came and uh just stood next to me and started to try and engage with me um which it was I mean I it's it's hard to put into words. Uh, I mean, I was my head. Yeah, it was really, really difficult for both of us. But I think, well, yeah, for both of us, because you know, I didn't want to talk. This stranger was was there trying to talk to me. Um, it was a horrific sort of beginning to the conversation, but it got better. I think that's key. And what did you, Neil, because one, one thing that struck me hearing about this, this was kind of just a little bit later than Russia, wasn't it? So it was a busy, busy time on, on that January day. And part of me thinks, well, why does everyone not go and try and help? And then part of me thinks, would we, do we, what do we do? And that is the story of hope, I think, is to understand from this how your one decision changed everything. And that's kind of why Johnny's sitting here. So what did you see and what did you say, Neil? Yeah, you're right. I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't want to paint this picture of me being this angelic kind of presence that just drifted down from the heavens and was this saviour, because, you know, we are all imperfect on many days and actually have days you think, oh, could have could have done that, could have said that to that person. Um, and again, setting expectation about revealing like any magic formula to like that particular situation like is not is not going to happen in this conversation it's just about I think um how you are on a particular day what's in front of you and I was very lucky to be honest I was shown how to <laughs> how to have weird wonderful and inappropriate conversations growing up like that was part of my like my relationship with my my parents, especially my dad, like we'd be in a queue at a supermarket and he would like strike up a conversation with the checkout person and like there'd be a queue waiting and I just want the ground to swallow me up as a young person thinking, oh, you're so embarrassing. Or, you know, if, if he liked a person's shoes, we'd be sitting down having coffee. He'd, he'd walk over to this guy and be like, hey, where did you get those shoes? And I'd just, well, dad, what are you doing? He'd but get on well guess... with my dad, I think. Okay, <laughs> cool. Let's put them together. That would be, and let's film that. <laughs> <laughs> and um but that kind of like and that gave me like it showed me it role modeled that um you can just you know um you can interrupt people's day right so I guess like that's the whole like why um and so like I did on that day like I, I interrupted Johnny's day and um, you knew I guess from seeing Johnny you knew what was there was not much or was there any thought in your mind of is this what I think it is or, or was it pretty clear what you thought it was and that Johnny was planning to take his life honestly like within the first few seconds no I don't think so I thought he was probably just um because he, he was he was quite a distance away you know a few hundred yards that I'd come on to Waterloo Bridge and my first, I was like, who else is he with? Like, I was looking around. Why is, mm. why is a guy sitting on the side of a bridge, like in a T-shirt, shivering on a, like a cold winter's morning? Um, we are not taught about that scenario growing up, right? I think we're more aware nowadays, okay, especially in the last decade. But before that, nobody framed to me what uh, somebody attempting their, to take their life looked like. So, no, it was literally approaching him. I felt like the dumbest question to ask. I literally walked up to him and kind of, like I said, interrupted this bubble he was in and said, hi, mate, why are you sitting on a bridge? I didn't know how else to, like, make the um, the approach. Anyway, and then he told me why. So then that's why I understood why. Um, isn't that, like, crazy that you have to kind of, like, ask a person in distress in that situation? Like, society is in that place where you've got to ask, like, why are you sitting here? Because, like, there's no education. We don't know about it. So, anyway, I did. And we spoke. And as Johnny said, you know, it was um, being up close, being, like, point-blank range together, right? I could see, yeah, it made sense, like, how distraught he was, Um 
I'd never seen somebody like that, that, that distraught emotionally. I could see it in his face. Um, that, and that was a first for me because we don't, um, nobody shows those emotions, especially like friends, family. I'd never seen somebody exhibit those emotions to me before or been in that proximity to anybody. So, yeah, it was all like, like Johnny said, it was it was difficult for, for, for both of us. But what I, I was just trying to pull out the bag, this like this plucky, this happy-go-lucky, just because um, I know like there's this train of thought, like, like you should mirror people's emotions to kind of connect rapport and all that. Um, I, I don't, don't think I that don't can know. extend to suicide. No, I, I don't know. Mm. But you didn't presumably, because did you go in... I know I've heard you both talk about this a lot and anyone who hasn't seen the Channel 4 documentary, we'll put a link to it. It's incredibly powerful and we'll talk about that because it was so much more than Johnny finding Neil, wasn't it? So much incredible stuff came out of that and no doubt many lives were saved because of that. But when you're in that position, because having lost people to suicide myself and we met at the Baton of Hope event, um, and again, we'll put a link to that, amazing that the penultimate night down in Brighton, and I just lost a friend to suicide just mm. one week before that and, and found that night, um, looking back at it, it probably wasn't the best timing to be involved, mm. but you two were there. And that was very inspirational. And one yeah. of the things that came out of it was, you know, this guilt we have, you know, if only we had saved somebody, if only we'd been there. But you're very committed at that point to doing it, right, Johnny? You're not sort of thinking, oh, if someone has a chat with me, I'll be wandering off this bridge. At that point, you're absolutely committed to what you're going to do, right? And you're beyond the point where reason would come into things because you're in such immense pain, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I was expecting was this, person stranger to be there so I was actually I was quite annoyed <laughs> at first I was like I won't repeat what I said um go on it's called namaste motherfuckers <laughs> if there's one place you can repeat it that's that's true that's true well yeah I'm pretty sure I did say just fuck off and just several times um just leave me alone because yeah I was like there's nothing you can say and there's nothing you can do and you're just interrupting me do you know what I mean um yeah I was uh yeah it must have been really hard for, for Neil because uh not only did I not want to talk I also just I did not want him there at all his presence his being his yeah his happy-go-lucky self you know that was uh yeah that was the complete contrast to the place I was in um so yeah, I was because <laughs> you know it, it's yeah it, the whole you know that, there was a long journey up to the to the bridge, um, and I was finally there, and <laughs> yeah, then there was this stranger, this person interrupting me. So yeah, I was I was uh, yeah I remember feeling really angry and annoyed, and I as I said I showed that I was very uh, had nothing to lose, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, it was yeah again it was it was really it must have been a really tough again my memory is quite hazy but it must have been a really tough exchange being on that bridge together I remember hearing um at that night that we shared together um in 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 Brighton I should say not just you and me the night that we were all at in Brighton mm -hmm. and I did um I remember hearing you know the only conversation the only wrong thing you can say is nothing when someone's in that state um and I and I found that really powerful because I think we often shy away from saying something if we think someone's at that point albeit most of us haven't been in such an extreme situation we might have a friend or someone we love where we suspect maybe things have got that sort of difficult for them but do you remember what the thing was because you went from fuck off Neil to mm. getting off the bridge do you mm. remember what the switch was I think it was uh well firstly it was it wasn't a quick thing you know there was um I think I think to me there was the fact it was the fact that he uh stayed and listened and because you know I, as I said I've been in this hospital and in, in this hospital um everything was just you know someone would only sit with you for five minutes like my psychiatrist would, was so busy he would come around and just talk at me for five minutes every day and that was it and then it'd go and uh and everything was so focused on like my medication and my illness um were you on suicide watch in that hospital mm, at that time and that literally in in under resourced sort of institutions yeah. that's literally someone watching you isn't it that no yeah. one's sort of helping you they're just making sure that 
technically you can't you can't yeah. take your life yeah yeah so literally just someone there but with neil it was so different because he was so engaged and like really he, he wanted me to talk and he wanted to listen and um i think it for me it was probably a gradual change again my memory is hazy neil knows neil's got more of a memory than me but i think it was a gradual change um in me as i realized that yeah he wasn't going anywhere he was very much staying and he was really engaged and interested for the first time someone i don't know yeah someone really wanted to talk and like listen to my distress um because in the hospital i remember uh you know i in the hospital i did try and talk at times and they would give me like sleeping pills if i said i was suicidal um to try and i guess just numb numb me and well yeah put me to sleep but yeah with neil it was really different like um he seemed really he didn't seem to want to shy away from from anything and yeah i guess having someone there that was uh that was like that i i did i i did gradually change i think over that uh it, during that conversation and go to more towards his sort of side if that makes sense and how does that um sort of tally with your recollection neil of what it was like from the other side of that conversation yeah you know the whole like oh fuck off your <laughs> you know that that thing i think for most people um that that could have ended the the, the situation mm. really quickly um I, again i don't know if people are going to find this interesting listening because it's so like it's so individual it's so subjective it's so like could i what could i do in that situation um i was like super comfortable with with conflict again this is not really bad but like in a really healthy way so um and all this stuff is like it's not cognitive it's only like on reflection later where like when I've thought about periods of my life and the whole nurture of that, um, I guess like kind of by luck, by accident, like for this, this pivotal, like it's, we're going to explore how this was probably quite pivotal for both of us this moment. Like I was kind of primed for that. Like I was like, okay, well fuck me then bring it on because <laughs> you know what? Right. Fine. Let's talk about that. And like that was a skill that was like given to me by accident. So um, yeah, it was pretty pretty true account to be honest. As a personal um, trainer, I used to people going "fuck off." I'm not doing yeah, that exactly. And I'm <laughs> like, right, I tell you, right, ten more burpees <laughs> for that. And if you say it again, it's another fifteen. Um, but I don't know, like I as well, like I'm a bit, you know, there's carrot and stick. Like I'm a big, like um, I, I'm influenced by the whole like stick approach. Like I like to be given a hard time. Not that I was giving Johnny a hard time, but I was like, listen, okay. That's a high risk strategy when someone's in that position. Mm. To it was a, a high risk. There was no other strategy. No, it wasn't a hard time. It was just like, okay, that's fine. That's where this conversation is. Um, right. Let's, let's just try and get to a place of reason really quickly um which is like the complete opposite of like if I try and do that in any other situation like it doesn't usually work out I feel like people get quite frustrated quite quickly when I try and like mm -hmm. when 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 people are firing emotion at you and you don't give back emotion and you just give back reason okay in a normal situation that usually doesn't work mm -hmm. because it just people want to be fed back the emotion mm -hmm. but I don't know why it just felt right and uh, do you know what with the persistence persistence pers persistence I feel like Johnny there was a marked change in the dynamic of the conversation about 10-15 minutes into that bridge you know conversation and um I guess like it was just 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 trying to just keep to that that structure and yeah we actually ended up um I thought I really like this guy you know, because we started talking about other stuff. Like and you were a similar from... age. You're just what four years apart. Um, yeah, yeah, I've always got four years on Johnny. <laughs> That's always just not got... changing, is it? Stubborn. <laughs> no, Time is stubborn. Yeah. So you're young guys having that combat. Because mm. one of the things that really struck me, and the people I've had on the podcast um, have actually been, I had Tom Chapman, who's the founder mm. of the Lions Barber Collective, and I've had Danny yeah. Wilshire, who was one of the finalists mm. in the piano. So um, interestingly, the people I've had who've been sort of in the heartland of conversations about mental mm. health and suicide have been men. And um, not that this doesn't, of course, absolutely affect women, not mm. least women, women my age. But one of the things that really struck me 
even though you didn't, neither of you set out with that intention. Certainly Johnny did not set out with that intention that day, but you just, you bore witness to Johnny at his, when you were probably, I don't, don't want to put words into your mouth, but there's a real sort of shame and isolation that goes with being that far down the line of a mental health crisis. And it struck me something really powerful about a stranger just looking at you, hearing you, seeing you, mm. not thinking it was shameful. Did, was there something powerful in someone just bearing witness to you in that pain and not shying away? Yeah. And also, again, I, th I think, yeah, maybe being a young man as well. Um, I don't know what it was. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I just think because, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I had lots of relationships and I, I was at university at the time. I'd, I had to I had to drop out and it was awful. But um, yeah, I'd had lots of kind of more open relationships with uh the women the women in my life mm -hmm. at the time i had no all of the i, I mean i lived with <laughs> actually i lived with um five other guys at the time in my student house and we were so like laddie and uh, oh my and i'd hidden everything from all these guys my self-harm my i was struggling with alcohol um all, all my all the stuff that had been going on at university um because we were so like laddie and you know we, we just we would never have these sorts of conversations emotions like they didn't exist to us so yeah I think maybe to have another young guy like um be so uh open to my yeah suffering my pain my absolute distress I think I think that was really powerful looking back um I think as well it's really important to say I haven't mentioned but um and again Neil's Neil's talked about it but his positivity because I, uh, again, I don't want to, I know I keep saying this, but the hospital was so bleak. It was, I can't put it into words. It was so bleak and despairing. I mean, it, so this was just after Christmas and it, the hospital was full and it was, no one was getting better. Everyone was so unwell. And yeah, the new year had just come and every, there was this energy of just complete despair and bleakness in the hospital um around me so yeah to suddenly have this young guy who yeah he was really positive and upbeat and and I think the, the key is again that positivity you know he kept saying to me mate you're gonna be all right and I know that might sound very simple but honestly no one was saying that to me in the hospital my psychiatrist was really quite negative to me and my my family um you know we don't know what's going to happen to Johnny jo Johnny's very unwell he's really sick um so yeah to have this guy this this stranger just tell me yeah it's gonna be all right I don't know yeah you just wouldn't it sounds like you just wouldn't write Johnny off Neil you were like I'm not I'm not giving up Namaste motherfuckers Namaste motherfuckers I know that at the end of that I've heard you guys talk about it and I know that you were sort of trying to get Johnny to go for a coffee and trying to just keep the conversation going mm. I guess getting crucially get him off the bridge and out of the immediate danger and then I know that the actual that moment ended in a in a fairly sort of well to put it diplomatically a brusque kind of police intervention um and that everything kind of uh, because and so right after that I guess it wasn't a sort of two blokes sitting in Costa Going, oh, what was, what was I like? It was rather more dramatic than mm. that. What happened mm. right afterwards? Yeah, and I think I think probably um, for both of us, like it would have been nice to have that closure for that conversation because, like, there was a rapport, and it was like probably almost half an hour before the police turned up, you know, and the conversation had gone from the dark place to more kind of just like chit chat, chit chat. And Johnny, a member of I the guess... public had called the police. That was nothing to do with you, you guys. That no. had just, that someone else had seen it and done that. No, I mean, um, again, like some of the nuances of like what happened. Like I had a mobile phone on me, and quite early on, like I suggested that like we can call someone, but Johnny was like, no. Um, so I guess just trying to respect that and not bring that up again, kind of, I thought, well, I just, there were obviously there were lots of people on the bridge as you highlighted, it was just after rush hour, but I think something interesting happened. Like the, uh, the more um, time that I was present about what was going on around me, I could see that people started to actually look and like give me, you know, I guess like a bit of um, a bit of like, I don't know what the word is like affirmation, like, mm -hmm 
eye contact where you know you say like people can walk past and i i could walk past something on any given day for sure like if my head's in the wrong place or whatever um i think when somebody sees what an intervention looks like they'll be like oh okay well i can help now so like i was getting like lots of positive affirmation from people around me some people actually stood still like 20 yards down you know from where we were um johnny didn't see that like they were standing almost as like backup like i don't know what they were going to do but it was not like all of a sudden like a sense of community started to gather like in little pockets i guess somebody one of those people like probably called the police or the or so yeah again there was probably like another you know good samaritan act that actually helped the whole situation so police turned up um they i mean putting it bluntly like knowing what i know now having been an advocate for a number of years work with suicide prevention charities they didn't have the best training on the day you know for certain reasons um it was it was abrupt it was very rude it was it was a contrast to what i tried to do in that half an hour it's almost shaming you again isn't it just when you think you don't need to be ashamed it's almost treating you like a criminal and to be ashamed again which is the last thing that's helpful at that moment yeah yeah it was yeah it was that was tough that was really that was a really uh really tough interaction i got handcuffed and restrained and um yeah i think just the fact that could we <laughs> we had built up this rapport and yeah there was this connection there and that was just suddenly interrupted and we didn't even get a chance to say goodbye that's what i was going to yeah. ask so you just yeah. got sort of ripped asunder so you've had this incredible intense connection for half an hour or whatever it is unexpected life-changing life-saving you get whizzed off by the police i guess neil you go what do you do go off and go off and train someone <laughs> what did you do after they're looking for more people i can <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> yeah savior on the bridge um yeah just back to work and um it was really weird um, because, like, like I said, I'm, I am quite an internalizer, and I can, I can tell you, I didn't didn't actually bring it up for days. I think I maybe told one or two people at work that it it happened. Um, I just felt like nobody would. I know this sounds ridiculous because, like, we understand the gravity of and of what happened, but I just felt like nobody would be interested if I said if I told them my story of like that morning right so I just got on with my working day it turned up and um but that was a point I would pass every day I would walk past that spot I would um you know remember the conversation I would you know days turn into weeks years uh months years and um yeah apart from a handful of you know family members or whatever it was just my own little fond memory of like something that, um, oh, I guess maybe I helped uh, another human being, you know? So it was like, for me, it was a very positive interaction for Johnny. Obviously the whole thing was like a part of his journey, which is completely different. Yeah. And enormously um, traumatic, although it ended in a way that's, that gives yeah. hope. Yeah. So, and mm. did you, did you, because then fast forward six years and that's when you launched the kind of find Mike because mm. you'd named Neil Mike mm. because you couldn't remember the name right yeah. Yeah. and um and in well just tell us because one of my questions about that is what what took you so long Neil because <laughs> it was a massive campaign <laughs> like you how did you because you did you did finally emerge but just tell us um Johnny that those six years and then you teamed up with Rethink Mental mm. Illness to to find not Mike but Neil mm. as it turned out yeah, no, that was, uh, I mean, those six years were just me getting back on track. I was, well, not just, it was, it was, that was the hardest, again, period of my life, like, you know, acknowledging, dealing with everything, finally getting help, getting therapy, starting to take medication. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, it took a long time because uh, people often wonder, like, why didn't you just why six years that's such a long time but it, it did it took you know these things they, they take time right uh, it's no quick fix and um but when I was finally finally in a better place where I was able to talk because it took me such a long time to like properly properly talk and be open and be frank uh, so were you everyone. averse to talking therapy when you first went into the when you were first in in that situation and having that intense psychiatric help you didn't want to talk no I mean and the thing is, it's it's funny because, you know, 
I first got taken to a psychologist when I was five. My parents, <laughs> I, I, yeah, they could see from an early age that uh, I was not like every all the other kids. So, you know, I should have been maybe used to sitting in front of someone and, but I just could never, I couldn't look someone in the eyes. That was my thing. I just could never look someone in the eyes and, and talk and be honest and be open. Um, again, maybe being, being a, being a man and um, also growing up in quite a conservative, a Jewish family, we, we did not talk about again, feelings and thoughts. And so, yeah, it did. It took me a, 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 yeah, a long time to be able to properly sit down with someone and open up. Um, but when I finally started doing that, then I was in a place where I could think about trying to find this this guy because again it that that interaction had ended so abruptly uh, we didn't exchange details as you hear I didn't get his name right I didn't remember his name properly so he looks like a Mike my brother's called yeah. Mike Neil and you look like my brother so I Thank think you're you. very apt uh, erroneous you. naming so you've given Thank him this you. name that wasn't his name and then yeah. and then you decided six years on it was the moment to try and find him yeah um well i was working with this amazing charity as you mentioned rethink uh who do the most incredible work around around the country and um i became an ambassador for them and i told them my story like you know like i've been telling you and they they were the ones that said well why don't we try and find this guy and help you find him and uh let's do it through social media because you know that's the way we're doing things at the moment and uh yeah we just kind of took a chance and um uh, to be honest, we we also wanted to raise awareness of you know mental illness and particularly suicide, and we thought this is a great way to to do that. So, it was actually six years to the day on on a bridge that we launched the the search online, and um, yeah, really didn't know how people would respond uh, if it would get anywhere, but. It went massive, know. didn't it? Yeah. It was like trending. I, I think I, I'd heard on the documentary that uh, the hashtag Find Mike was trending more than Obama and Beyonce at the time. And given that this was 2008, that's quite something. But with so yeah. it's you, you and I will say it's very lucky. Well, it's very lucky for all of us that you're here, Johnny, but it's also very lucky that both of you happen to be extremely eloquent and, and savvy and capable of getting your messages across. So you're real uh, poster boys for this whole thing because you managed to convey it in a way that's extremely compelling and um understandable but you did so your media appearances it was it, it was a real I really would urge anyone to watch that documentary because one of the things I think is really powerful in it is even in the documentary you see masking in action i.e you on television being so entirely capable of being articulate capable this is what I'm doing and then you see your pieces to camera on your own where you're very vulnerable you're very mm. shaky and even that I thought it's really important we see that that you're able to front this campaign but underneath it all you're very lost and vulnerable and and conflicted so I found that a real lesson a case study in, in mental health and we shouldn't ever assume mm. that what we're mm. seeing on the surface has anything to do with what's going on so you're mm. extremely compelling and there and I think it was partly that and partly this incredible story but what struck me also is when I know it says in the documentary 38 possible mm -hmm. mics came forward some of which were sort of just getting on, on the bandwagon but mm -hmm. many you realize how many people have mm -hmm. saved a person even specifically on Waterloo Bridge which is yeah. uh, I found that kind of an incredible thing to hear yeah it was really un unbelievable really unbelievable and then getting to talk to some of those people because and I didn't I, I never appreciated what you know what it must have been like for Neil after because when I spoke to some of these amazing heroes you know they all they just wanted to know what what their what, what had happened to that person and there was sort of no closure you know for all these incredible amazing people and um I, I'd never thought about that before um you know what it must have been like afterwards for Mike and Neil um and so that really, it, the whole thing was just, yeah, it really, it just really opened my eyes. And um, I didn't realise how many people, unfortunately, uh, went to the bridges in, in London, particularly Waterloo mm -hmm. Bridge. Um, but then again, yeah, also didn't realise how many, because we know, we all know what, you know, London or big cities can be like, you know, everyone's just got their heads down and just trying to get on with their lives and, you know, it can be quite cold. It can be really cold, really cold. And people have, but then you hear all these phenomenal stories of people helping 
one another and it just restores your faith in humanity I think, mm, I think most people are very good people I, my belief yeah, is firmly right. that most people have well everyone's got a story to tell and most people if you're lucky enough to get to hear it or talk mm. to them it's worth a few minutes of your time okay. so Neil back to you what took you so long given this mm -hmm. was a massive campaign because it was a, I mean I know I'm sure having worked in television for the purposes of the documentary they mm. didn't want to bum you in and minute two and then that's the end of the short film but, uh, but what really what really happened how did you finally make the connection that you were Mike well on on the documentary you'll see Johnny standing on Waterloo Bridge handing out flyers being like has anyone seen this guy and this is the irony right I that morning Johnny was there I probably was did walk to work over the bridge right so like um yeah and then by the time I'd seen the campaign it was on my um <clears throat> I, she's my wife now at the time my fiance um it was on her facebook feed so she so the story that had been picked up um shared online virally um ended up on so sarah's feed and sarah like she was a wet like she knew the story obviously but hadn't you know didn't know what johnny looked like um she showed me she showed me by the time i saw it uh, he'd already been on Lorraine Kelly twice, which I'd missed. Um, the Metro, yeah, again, like 2008, right, for context, like 100,000 shares. Like, that, was, that was big, right? Mm. Uh, sorry, 2014. That was big. Like, I, I saw at the bottom of that post that it had been reshared like 100,000 times. Well, I must have been like the 100,000th and one person, to, you know, like, it just missed me. I don't know. Like, so I need to, like... Sometimes I do need to open my eyes a little Good bit. Good to be or more like watch, observant on bridges than on Facebook. Oh, no, this is the thing. Like, I can go weeks without watching the news. Like, it doesn't bother me. So, like, I'll get, you know, obviously, we're talking about our situation. And I do feel guilty for that. Like, um, uh, a couple of weeks went, oh, no, a good, a good week went by. Like, I didn't have any idea what was going on. You know, like, with all the wildfires in, like, um, Europe, Portugal, mm -hmm. Greece, it'd been going on for, like, four days. And it was only because I went into London and picked up a Metro and I was like, Jesus, like, mm -hmm. I I, you know, so sometimes you can feel incredibly guilty that you're missing out. Like you feel like you should like watch, you know, find out what's going on. So it's not, it's not unusual, Kelly, for me to like literally not know, like we've got a new prime minister I can I'm really good at retreating I guess at that time I was in you know I'd retreated but anyway yeah I took a while which was probably very annoying for Johnny and the, the team good for the did. film though <laughs> good for the film. Suspense <laughs> but when I saw it it was like oh my gosh because yeah like it was I'd, I'd almost forgotten about this I hadn't forgotten, but you know, it's just like I said, this little fond memory ticking away in the back of my mind, and then it's like it's real again. It's it's real. Oh my gosh, there he is. There's and his you face. did know you straight away knew because you yeah. did have a clear record. Because one of the things that was yeah. interesting in the documentary was when you got given, you'd narrowed it down to I think it was four mm. mics, and we can all see Neil's face mm. as one of the four on the table, and you're we see it there. We know what Neil looks like, and we're thinking he's there, he's right in front of you. But I guess when you're in eclipsed by that you couldn't I mean if you're thinking about what your primal amygdala does in a moment of fight or flight you're totally eclipsed aren't you so you wouldn't have really known but you did know as soon as you when you met Neil mm. you you guys did so the meeting was, was of this this is Mike you you knew this was Mike and, and well, that was that meeting yeah well funnily enough actually it's really funny how yeah the mind works but it was actually there was a gesture when we when we met there was a gesture where Neil kind of I don't know, did something with his hand. And that's when it all, it wasn't his face. It was, yeah, this gesture that he made. And then suddenly like everything in my head just clicked back in. And I was like, oh my word, wow. Um, because it was overwhelming, to be honest. I was so overwhelmed during the whole campaign. And even when we met, when we were reunited, there were cameras everywhere. There were people all around. And so it was, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I actually struggled. I, did at one point say I can't I can't do this it was too much um mm. during the campaign it was it was it was it was a lot um because you're reliving everything aren't you yeah. and also via other people's stories yeah and you know to to be so public and you know also you know my family and my friends um some of my 
yeah, some of my family and friends had never, I don't know, I'd never talked to about the bridge and suddenly I was on TV in their living rooms, you know, talking about something that I'd never spoken to them directly about. It was a lot. Um, it's a very intimate moment as well. You're having a very intimate moment and you've let yourself be seen by one stranger and suddenly uh, yeah. millions of strangers are seeing you. Yeah. So it was, my head was kind of, uh, yeah, there was a lot going on for me. But as soon as, it was so funny, as soon as we were reunited and we sat down, it was it was like the bridge again, like everything just around just sort of faded. And it was just me and Neil and we just, it was it was amazing. It was incredible. It was like, we were old friends and uh yeah this conversation it was uh again it's really hard to put it into words what that was like how was it for you Nia when you walked in and saw Johnny yeah it was really special it was very special that moment um in the documentary you'll see us talking for two minutes but we we talked for like an hour um that so that was the catalyst for me I guess like my whole paradigm shift and like mental health started in that moment because of the friendship that ensued with Johnny. I've got to say though, um, <laughs> it was probably the most inconvenient moment in my life. Like, no offense, Johnny, like it's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, but Johnny. like that that particular year, that particular year. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. so this is like January <laughs> 2014, but I'm actually like I've mm -hmm. I've moved, like I've been in a stable place in my career, and I've after eight years I've left. I've, I'm starting a new job in August that year. I'm getting married, I'm planning my wedding. Mm. And um, so like, you know, a couple of life events, right? Didn't need another one. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like all these media broadcasters are getting in touch with us, like in the spring. Um, and that, <laughs> it was funny mm. because I was trying to just really dedicate my time to like, I've got this wedding coming up and I'm changing, like I've got this honeymoon and I was walking down the aisle buying cigars for my wedding for all the boys to smoke and all that stuff. And my phone's going off, like, can you do this interview tomorrow? And I'm like, for BBC, um, oh, I've got this honeymoon coming up. Oh, I feel really bad. But do you know what? Actually, it was good. It was all like, right, chuck it in the mix. Um, Did you go and... to the wedding, Johnny? No, I didn't actually. I can't yeah. remember. I know, yeah. Where's your no. Actually, I've got a big, can I say this for the first time? I don't even think we spoke about it. I've got a big regret around that. And oh, I think, I know, because do you know what? We'd known each other for six months. And you know what it's like wedding this? And I was like, I knew in the back of my mind, this is where you need to trust your gut in life. Like I had people there that I'd known for years. And, you know, you've got like wedding list is a whole thing in itself, isn't it? It's a whole political thing, right? And I was just like, I know Johnny should be there. And I was just like, I don't know why. Like, he wasn't, he didn't make the invite list. And like, I feel terrible. Oh, I feel oh, terrible. Do you it's know? Good to know you're not perfect, Neil. No one likes. I know to nobody's so. perfect. Do you know what it was? Do you know what it was? Like on reflection, like, I, I don't think we've really spoke about it because I probably felt so guilty. I've never acknowledged it. It was like there was loads and loads of like like we were doing really high profile stuff that year around suicide awareness men's mental health because of like you know the fine mic and documentary was coming out and stuff like that and it was just like it was almost like so high profile i think in the back of my mind because we'd we'd been friends only six months and it you know the fa family didn't really know i was like i wonder if this is going to take a load of attention away on the day yeah you know what i mean yeah. And so maybe there was, and I actually, mate, I think, Callie, this is actually, being on your podcast, it's actually a bit of an apology, like, oh, ten, like 10 years later, to like, I'm sorry you weren't at my wedding. Like, I think I've just unfolded a terrible. namaste motherfucking moment that we were I think you have. Johnny, can we talk about this when we see each other? No, but the thing is, I haven't thought about, like, I don't, Yeah, it sounds a bit harsh, but I, I don't care. Like, I got, I did get you a nice present, though. Remember? I think He's this is adding to the guilt, Johnny. I don't yeah, think we should true. be throwing presents into the mix. He, <laughs> but he did come to my, you know, you were at, you, you're definitely on the list. It was like Thanks. my first daughter's christening. Yeah, I think there, he came to the honeymoon. The I was like, no, this is just weird. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly, you nearly just split us up right now. In oh this my movie. word. Oh, <laughs> and did you, um, and did you, that, that's that's what comedians need to learn. You throw in a silly joke and next thing you know, <laughs> you've caused a rumpus. You, know, you, you broke up, you know. 
but they say it's not about the rupture it's about the repair and we know yeah. you guys are good for the repair oh, exactly. but did you um just to kind of uh, fast forward to the present day because this is all about hope and it's so important I always like that everything we do on this podcast leads to messages of hope and that isn't saccharine let's assume nothing's wrong still nothing's difficult I know you still struggle with mm you know you're, you've still got schizo, schizo affective disorder that hasn't yeah. gone away I know you've talked to feeling suicidal again since that day yeah. so let's not be naive about the fact that there yeah. are sort of magic wands and that's really important but did you in terms of where we are I, I remember someone saying at that evening that we were at together um it, and it was called an evening of hope and yeah. uh and for anyone who doesn't know what the what the button of hope was it was carried by people who'd been connected to suicide from um wherever it was in scotland all the way down to the yeah. um, houses of parliament and rose who was mm. sort of pivotal to making that all happen um and we'll put a link to her charity she mm. said about hope and she said for her the acronym is most helpful um because i think one it's often known as help one person every day but she said what she finds helpful is hold on mm. pain ends and the fact that people don't want their lives to end necessarily but they want the pain to end so I guess really crucially for people listening we'll put lots of links to things that might help so so I'd love to hear from each of you before I move into the three questions I ask everyone sort of what what is your message not of naive hope but where is the hope and what can we do and and what what yeah how how are differences going to continue to be made you want to me to go you can't see this, everyone, but Johnny <laughs> nodded over the camera, which means that I should pick that up. Hope is, um, yeah, I believe I believe that hold on, pain ends. Um, I do believe that the human spirit is so resilient and often, especially this day and age where we've got everything we need, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally at the touch of a fingertip, like we don't get the chance to test our resilience. Um I think I just want to say to everybody that um, don't be like, I haven't been in Johnny's shoes, um, but I've suffered mental turmoil on days. I'm getting better at talking about, you know, those times when I have, I think we all have, I think it's a condition of the human spirit. Uh, You can often compare it to what other people have gone through, but um, don't be hard on yourself about how, how it affects you on the day. Um, or the week or the month that you're going through it uh, everybody is going to have trials and tribulations to go through uh, it's part of your it's part of your journey of being a human being on the planet um, if you haven't had that yet you it's coming if you if you've gone through it well done congratulations you know you're still here okay the human spirit is so kind of indestructible really um, and I think our story is a testament to that you know Johnny's recovery give hope to so many people that are yet to have their moment and they can say, okay, well, look at that. You know, if he can get through that, so can I. Um, and yeah, I've had my moments. Nobody's, nobody's uh, infallible. Um, or no, nobody can escape, you know, our spectrum of emotions that we will have to go through. So that's, that's my message. You know, we're all going to go through stuff. Um, and the pain, the pain does end and life will go on. So um, give give yourself a chance to just um, be in that moment and go through it and uh, you, you'll come out the other side. And what is your message of hope, um, Johnny? Yeah, I guess, um, well, it's kind of related to our story, I guess. It's, a, it's about, um, yeah, reaching out and um, it's, it's, the hardest thing to do well for me it's been the hardest thing to do is uh to reach out to talk even though you know we had that moment on the bridge and I came through it uh I've had multiple relapses been in hospital multiple times and I still something just shuts down in in my brain um you know when I'm in that place it just something just stops me from I don't know reaching out and talking to someone but then I don't know, maybe a week later, a month later, something else kicks in in my brain and says, no, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to tell someone, you have to talk, you have to reach out. Um, And every time I do, it is, I know it's a cliche, but it's such a weight off my shoulders whenever I reach out and talk and uh, tell someone. And, you know, uh, sometimes, actually quite often, that is 
a stranger. Um, because it is, uh, you know, it's hard to talk to loved ones often. Um, it's so much easier sometimes with a stranger who doesn't, you know, know your backstory, have that sort of relationship connection with you. Um, so I'm I'm a big advocate for amazing organizations like Samaritans and Shout, where you can just talk to a stranger for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it is, and just get everything out. And then um, just, I don't know, yeah, get that weight off your shoulders. Uh, and I've done it so many times, you know, in person at the Samaritans branches or by text message to someone at Shout. Um, and every time I, yeah, I do, I, f I feel a little bit more hopeful by the end of that, that conversation. So I know it's hard. It's so hard, but please, there's people right now there waiting for you 24 seven for you to reach out. Um, so, you know, please, please do it. And I, I guarantee you will feel, you will feel different by the end of that conversation with that stranger. It's really um, it, one of the things that struck me about the um, having been close to the 12 steps programs is that one of the powerful things in that is people just bear witness, strangers bear witness mm -hmm. for two or three minutes to someone. They don't solve it. They mm -hmm. don't. And that's that is the whole nature of that. It's just a collective of strangers helping each other. And there's something mm -hmm. really powerful, whether or not you believe in the 12 steps um, about the capacity of humans to do that with each other mm -hmm. without expert need. You know, Neil wasn't an expert in yeah. mental health when that happened. And yet he was able to affect that change. The first question I always ask everybody is what would you each pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Um, I mean, if it's not this one for you, Johnny, I'm going to be really impressed with what the hell you've got in the in the tank. No, it is. It is. Trust me, it is. Phew. It wasn't the day you heard that you hadn't been invited to Neil's wedding. <laughs> that second. <laughs> so this is, I, I guessed it might be, but didn't want to assume. So yes, so so this would be, I imagine, yours. Uh, but Neil, I mean, interesting question. Um, you were on the other side of the transaction. Yeah, I think in relation to our story, um, I didn't know where it was going to lead. Uh, and I always thought any year, so 14, 15, 16, 17, like we're out there, we're talking about it, we're chatting to um, celebrities, everyday people. It was so cool. But there was one moment when, so we'd done some campaigning with the Royal Household, uh, Heads Together campaign, that's who we ran the marathon for. Um, we'd had some interactions with uh, Prince William and uh, Princess Catherine. And um, they just seemed to like, keep popping up in our, our circle it was bizarre and anyway at the time we had launched a workplace series conference for companies to come together and talk and I was helping booking speakers with people that I'd met over the years and I wrote this email to the royal household just kind of like hey would Prince William like I know he talked about it would he be interested to attend uh, there was a bit more to it than that obviously and um sent and um you know what, weeks went by, I didn't get a response. And I was like, oh my God, I've completely tarnished the relationship. They're never going to contact, you know, we're never going to be in the room with them again. I asked too much. And then um, I hadn't checked my junk folder for like two weeks. And there's this message from like the Royal Household, like Prince William, you know, my subject line, you know, to attend conference. And I opened it and it was basically a yes. And I was like, oh my God gosh wow so is that happening and then like fast forward to when it happened this is 2018 we've done years of campaigning and yeah lo and behold we've, we've created this event and prince william is is sitting down contributing um i mean if that's not a namaste motherfucking moment i don't <laughs> think it's like would he pick up the phone today i don't know maybe i'll give it a try you never know um and i think that's just a message like it was a bit like your one that I knew about, you know, you said about you had somebody that told you you could be a comedian. What was her name again? Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers said, mm. you know, it was kind of it was the same vein. It's like, do you know what? Anything is possible. If you just put it out there, you never know what can come back. And, you know, why not try? So, yeah, that was that was I'm pretty. I'm going to get him on the podcast and I even inspired me. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I <can> do, <laughs> oh, do you know what? 
Give me his mobile. I think his contacts. Well, you don't get his actual mobile, but yeah, so that was my, I mean, like loads of moments, but if I'm going to pick one, that was pretty namaste, motherfucker. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I think we've also learned from this podcast, you need to get much better at your admin. You missed the whole fine mic thing. You missed the bloody, it's a wonder you you didn't miss the invitation to come on here. So thank you. Rare moment. Um, And um, it seems a funny question to ask because it's it's a heavy topic, but it is also a topic that's very sort of human and and as I say full of hope um so in keeping with that and the podcast um what's each of your favorite jokes can Johnny go first yeah come on Johnny this is landing with you oh gosh mine is just silly but it makes me laugh every time um what's brown and sticky go on a stick Yay, I've it's got a dog awful. sitting under it's... here. I was thinking, oh, I was worried. No, it's excellent. It's awful. Sounds <laughs> like it sounds like the jokes we have in our house at the moment, which are off the back of yogurt cartons. Because I've got a six None and a three and a one-year-old and a one-year-old. <laughs> and they're just like the lamest jokes, uh, but funny as well. So So what's yours then, Neil? I had to think about this. Um, this is gonna sound really bad, and I can't tell jokes, I'm terrible. And by accident it's kind of linked to our story through context but i'm going to do it anyway and i'll probably get loads of abuse for this but i i've somebody told it to me years ago and i just thought it sounds funny so i'm going to do it and here it is and it's going to be rubbish but a guy walks into a psychiatric unit of all places and he's there to visit his family and um when and he's waiting he's waiting to see a family member uh, and while he's waiting, uh, he strikes up a conversation with one of the other inpatients who's having a bit of free time and they talk and, you know, they get on. And and at the end of the conversation, the guy visiting says, do you know what, like, why, why are you in here? And the inpatient says, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm really normal. Like, I I think I don't think I should be here. Uh, I, I need to get discharged. Um, and the visitor says, I agree. I completely agree. Um, do you know what? When I finish visiting my family member, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a letter uh, to to the facility, and I'm gonna recommend that you know you're you're reviewed. So anyway, he has his meeting um, with his family member an hour or so, leaves the building, thinking, yeah, I'm gonna write that letter, and then um, he's walking out, and this brick comes and hits him on the back of the head, smack. So like, what the fuck was that? He turns around, and it's the guy that he spoke to from the window. And he goes, why did you do that? And he went, don't forget to tell them I'm normal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And, and I've no idea why that's my favourite joke. He went there, Johnny. He went it, there. No, went there. <laughs> um, it's so layered. It's so layered for me. Anyway, anyway, I hope I didn't offend anybody. I just thought I don't even offend anyone. And I might say that's very well told. Because uh, yeah. if, there's, if there's one bunch of people who come on this podcast who fuck up the jokes, it's always the comedians. So well done for uh, keeping true to type. Um, so thank you for those jokes. And I'm not sure we can fit yours in our Christmas cracker episode, Neil, but we can definitely fit yours in, Johnny. It will have a place in it. Um, and again, I sort of covered this when I asked you, um, in keeping with the theme of, of suicide prevention, about what you would say as your messages of hope. So there may be some overlap, not for me to say, but I just want to end on asking you each um, if there was one bit of life advice each of you could give to anybody listening, what that life advice would be. I'll go because I think Johnny's is going to be better and, and that will be a good one to finish on. Um, I, uh, yeah, I love quotes. They really resonate with me. And I think for me, I've got a couple. One is... Um, just really simple. Just uh, if you want to change something in your life, you know, nobody's going to do it for you. Um, and I think that's just for my own experiences in life. Usually you're, you're your best kind of, uh, you know, way out of things. Um, here's the one I'm going to finish on. Um, be yourself because everyone else is taken. And actually, that's something that my uh, my dad says a lot. He's ripped it off someone else. I it's don't know Oscar who. Wilde who said that, I think. Is it? Yeah, it is. I think yeah. he plagiarised it like it was his own or something. I'm going to ask him about that. Anyway, <laughs> I, I should have known that. And I'm going to put that into context because, Callie, when we met, it was obviously, as we said, the Baton of Hope in Brighton. You know, you, you got this um, job to ask us to be on stage and say something meaningful. Like, what do you, what do you say to like almost i don't know what was it 800 people or so mm. who have been possibly bereaved by suicide mm. you know 
what's my value in that? Just a normal guy. And like, but having this quote in my head was so useful. Like, just be yourself because everyone else is taken. And that's all I did in that two minutes. I, I did, actually, that was really scary, that moment, because I was like, what do I say to these people? But be yourself because everyone else is taken. And I guess it, and it went down all right, didn't it? So, yeah, that's my advice. That's my advice. It works for me. No one booed, no one heckled. And for me as a performer, that's a bloody good two minutes well spent. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Neil. That's perfect. And Johnny? Yeah, I'm also going to use a a quote that I I really like. And uh, it's um, a Japanese proverb, and it's um, fall down seven times, stand up eight. Um, I just, and I, I apply it constantly to my life. Maybe I've fallen down... 300 times but I'll get up 301 times and I think everyone everyone can apply it no matter how many times you fall down you can get up um yeah it's something I live by that was Johnny Benjamin and Neil Laban We've put links to Johnny's charity, wearebeyond.org.uk, in the show notes, as well as Neil's mental health consultancy. And this episode, as I mentioned at the beginning, is going out on the 7th of September because the um, in line with World Suicide Prevention Day on the 10th of September. So 7th of September 2023, in case you're listening to this in the future. And um, a few sobering facts, really, in line with that important day on the 10th of September. More than 6,000 people die by suicide every year in the UK. That's 125 lives lost every week, 17 every day or one every 90 minutes and 75% of all UK suicides are male. We've included loads of links in the show notes to support you if you are affected by anything we've covered in the show including to the campaign against living miserably calm. So we really hope the conversations from today's show lead to you and those you know living less miserably and crucially to living with hope. And that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening to our first episode back in the new season of the show. Please do remember to rate, review and recommend us. We will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to criminologist and author of The Science of Hate, Matthew Williams. And then I went from shame, feeling shame, to feeling pride. Um, and then and then it, all that kind of negativity and, and fear disappeared. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. <laughs>Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.